You're listening to the Philly Maker Fair podcast. My name is Laura Cheneau. And I am Valerie Chiguendo. And I'm Jeremy DePrisco. We're here celebrating the creators, builders, inventors, and artists that bring their visions to life at the Philly Maker Fair. This week, we're talking with Tom Ward, co-founder of Epoch. Epoch Boats is building a new generation of boats using innovative engineering and technology to make eco-friendly, fast, great performing boats. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. It's great to be here on the Philly Maker Fair podcast and uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation today. We're cool. so glad to have you. Yeah, we're looking forward to it as well. So exciting. This topic is, is a wonderful one. Uh, I think we're going to start with when did you first start Epoch and why? Epoch, we, it really started as an idea about a year ago. Um, and, you know, funny enough, I, I always, I have roots in, in being a maker, right? It's, I think it's in, in everyone's DNA who ultimately identifies as a maker. You started somewhere. So um, I started with the concept of electric jet skis. That was what I thought was going to be Epoch in the early days. And like any good maker, just went out and started playing around with it and fiddling with things and looking at jet skis and looking at other boats and other electric, you know, drivetrains and apparatus and made a really simple spreadsheet, played with some RC stuff in the background and ultimately said, electric jet skis are not the way to go. We don't, we don't have the technology today. And, you know, thankfully got to figure that out pretty inexpensively and then ultimately pivoted into looking at electric boats. So we said, you know, what is a good, simple way that we can get into electric boats? Um, and maybe if I can jump back a minute, the big reason for the why, um, I grew up in the Philadelphia area. I've been a lifelong boater, whether it's at the Jersey Shore or on the Schuylkill River or you know local lakes and, and waterways. And what I had seen over my life was this transition from, as a kid, you know, part of it was probably ignorance. I didn't really know, but I would always jump in the water. I didn't care. And as I got older and was always <laughs> around the water, I kept looking at it and saying, man, there's like a rainbow oil slick there. Or I just saw that guy <laughs> pour some gas in accidentally, but he poured gas in the water and I don't know if I want to swim there anymore. So um, about seven years ago, I ended up getting a job in the recreational marine industry. Um, I was director of engineering at one of the largest suppliers in the industry. Our products were on 95% of all new boats and kind of a dream come true for someone like me. But always in the back of my head, there was this thought of, man, what we're doing here is pollutive. No, no matter what, stopgap, it's pollutive. And sometime last year, it really tickled. And I said, I have to do something about it. Did those early tests, did a bunch of research, found that because the boating industry is kind of overlooked by the EPA, the industry actually emits as much non-CO2 pollution as about 600 million cars. Oh, and <laughs> for reference, we have about 300 million cars registered in the US. So take the entire automotive fleet of the US and double it. And that's how much non-CO2 pollution we're putting out there. So that was kind of the impetus and then you know pulled a team together we looked at it and said how can we change this how can we make it fun because electrifying boats on the water is actually a really hard problem and if we can figure out a way to do that that makes people actually want to buy those boats and we can flip that really quickly it can have a huge environmental impact yeah That's i was staggering. raised around oh sorry go ahead valerie <laughs> That's okay go ahead i was just reacting to the to the numbers it's a staggering amount of uh yeah it's 
it's when you say that it's because I was raised around boats, one sailboat, but everybody else had motorboats and the oil and the gas, like that smell is sort of part of that memory for me. And when you say that, you're like, oh, yeah, there's always like oil on the water. And when you get near like where you and if I'm not mistaken, at least most of the boats that we had in our family, like a motorcycle, you would add lead to you mm-hmm. <laughs> would need leaded gas. So <clears throat> we think of that as being obsolete in the U.S. today, but at least with, you know, different kinds of crafts that aren't cars, we're still literally adding lead back into them. So that's uh, something that, you know, you don't even really think about. It's a, it is a really really interesting way that the engine economy for the boating industry has evolved over the years and um yeah i mean whether it's it's older engines that that like that you know lubricious let it guess lean or two-stroke engines where you're adding in you know oil and it's mixing you know a premix mm. for the engine which two strokes are notoriously bad for the environment um if we look at carb the california air resource board they've basically outlawed them by 2028 you're not going to be allowed to buy a new two-stroke engine in the state of california Hmm. because of these types of emissions um and you know we've gotten a little bit better in the boating industry you know most new boats have modern four-stroke engines but they still have these epa exemptions where they don't have to meet the standards that automobiles have and um you know it's i I see it as a two-sided uh kind of race that's going to play out here and one is the environmental side of it and regulatory tailwinds that are coming to come in and say hey you know we can't keep polluting the way that we're doing i think the other side of it that's going to play out is what we see happening voluntarily from the automotive makers as they're driving towards electrification eventually the infrastructure that we have supporting a gas economy is going to start to atrophy and dwindle and you know People aren't going to have a choice. The boating industry isn't as large as the automotive industry, obviously, by a long shot. And that's going to cause people to look at it and say, hey, if it's hard for me to get gas for my boat and I can just go buy an electric boat, it's going to be better for the environment. If it's designed right, it's going to perform the same way or better. And I'll just be able to plug it into my garage and you know have a great, clean day on the water. Mm-hmm. So how has the recreational boat industry reacted to the electric boats so far? With a with a surprising amount of support from the the players in the industry, the, you know the the manufacturers and the other boat builders, um, I think it's I think it's a little bit there's a little bit of apprehension because you know not everyone necessarily has the vision of how this is going to play out, or they might not have the in-house expertise to make it a reality for their product in the next year or two. But I think a lot of the people in the industry. They, they see what's coming and they understand how it's going to come. Um, and surprisingly from customers too, you know, we, when we started this, we looked and said, we're probably going to have the, the, you know, millennials and below age group who are going to get it. They've kind of grown up in the uh, era of Tesla. Mm-hmm. They see the benefits. And um, when we did our public launch, we had people who were retirees reaching out to us and saying, Hey, I've been a boater my whole life. I can't rebuild another carb ever again. You know, another carburetor. I'm done with that. And your electric boat looks awesome. When can I buy one? So um, it's been a it's been a really great response, and and I think people are ready for it. So now, so as you're talking, I'm just thinking. Um, you started off the company, and you thought, "Oh, I'm going to build a jet ski, or I'll build a boat." That you must have had some background that you know, maybe engineering background. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? 
And then I know you specifically picked uh, the hydrophils. I would love to hear more about those and how, you know, what the significance of the, the hydrophil, I mean, uh, what the significance of that is in your boats. Absolutely. So I, I've kind of, I've kind of played in the three disciplines, the three major disciplines of engineering my whole life, which, you know, I call that mechanical hardware and software, um, hardware being electronics. And um, as a kid, it was really easy, right? I, you know, would go in the garage and take my dad's tools and probably ruin them a little bit and just build <laughs> mechanical things. And um, <laughs> I think electronics were pretty simplistic back then too. I could go get batteries and hook them up to small motors that I had you know, stolen from drills or whatever. And uh, on the software side, it was always just playing around with early computers, right? MS-DOS days and in the command prompts. Mm. And as the internet was coming online, figuring out how we would, would mess around with that. And um, I'll tell a, a secret here. One of the things my dad would do in the early days is he would lock out our internet over the summer and be like, if you mow the lawn and you call me, I'll tell you what, what the password is. And I was always, <laughs> you know, figuring out how I could hack around that. And like, I'm not going to go mow the lawn. That's never going to happen. But I will go spend four hours trying to hack our modem or our router. So, um, okay. So he sparked that creativity view. <laughs> he, he unwittingly sparked it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, in, in that time period, environmentalism, certainly was something that was part of my childhood education, whether it was, you know, through PSAs and TV or what we learned in school. And so as I, as I got through high school and realized, Hey, this kind of engineering thing and taking stuff apart and, and doing well in STEM courses is, is something that works for me. I decided I was going to go to school for engineering, um, went to Drexel. I started off as a NEE major and my dream was I'm going to do alternative energy, right. Um, which is what, you know, I think we, we really call it climate tech nowadays, but, you know, back then it was alternative energy and you're going to go build wind turbines or, or things of that nature. Um, ultimately, you know, we had some economic woes back in the, the 2000s and um, <laughs> that kind of collapsed that alternative energy climate tech 1.0 bubble. Uh, so that that changed my plans a little bit. Um, I went from hard, you know, electronics, EE, and kind of reevaluated some things and said, hey, there's this there's this cool biomedical engineering college that Drexel had just started. Um, I also got a little disenfranchised because I was working in upperclassmen labs and some of the upperclassmen couldn't do simple things like read a resistor. Mm-hmm. You know, they would come and ask for a resistor and they'd have to borrow a multimeter so they could measure 50 different resistors to get the right, you know, 50 kilo ohm resistor they wanted. And I said, this is really simple, right? You know, we've got, we've got rainbow bands on here. Like you learn this freshman year and now you're a, a senior, you should understand it. So uh, those kind of two forces caused me to shift a little bit. And I went into biomedical engineering. I had no idea what I was doing. It turns out the the concentration in the major that I chose was almost pure software. Um, it was focused on bioinformatics and human genome engineering and proteomics. And I spent the next three years on a computer. And it was very interesting. At the end of it, um, I got to graduation. And basically what I was told is, hey, if you want to keep doing this, you need to get your PhD. Oh, and I said, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a new field, right? And I, I think mm-hmm. I was in the second or third year of the college of biomedical engineering. And, you know, this was really coming into mainstream and basically it was, yeah, go get your master's, go get your PhD. And then you can be a, you know, a study the human genome and figure out all of our industrial applications for that. And I said, that's not really going to work for me. Like mm-hmm. I need to be doing stuff right away. I can't go spend another, four or five, seven years in academia. So 
I went out and got a job, found a medical device company and figured my degrees in biomedical engineering, medical device company. It's a, it's a match made in heaven. <laughs> and first day on the job, and you know, I think, I think there was some confusion on both sides. So first day on the job, I get there and it was basically a mechanical engineering job. They sat me down and said, Hey, have you ever run SolidWorks before? I said, well, I did some AutoCAD, you know, I'll figure it out. And, and that was it. I learned on the job. Um, it was a small company, really great experience. We had model makers in house. We had a full machine shop. Uh, all the senior engineers had occupied all the model makers times, but thankfully they were really good in educating me and saying, Hey, I'll teach you how to run a late. I'll teach you how to run a CNC machine. And you know, that way, cause we're booked up all the time, you can build out your jigs and fixtures and prototypes and everything. So, you know, that was, that was kind of the, the end of my education, I guess, of you've, you've got this background in electronics, you've done a lot of software, and now in the real world, you're going to learn how to build things and how to make engineering prints and tolerance them. And what does the production technique actually look like? Um, and then, you know, since then, I've had a career, I've worked um, for what was actually a subsidiary of Mars. Um, MEI was the name of the company, and we designed and manufactured uh, currency validators. So oh, interesting. Yeah, it was, um, it was based in Westchester while I worked there. They, they moved to Malvern now, but we had over 90% of all Coca-Cola vending machines. Um, just the part that takes your dollar bill or your coin. Right. <laughs> so if, if anybody listening has ever bought a Coca-Cola from a vending machine, like you've touched a product that, that I worked on, um, really cool technology. You know, some of, the, some of the units that we would build would have five PCBs in them and eight or nine motors and light pipes and light sensors and magnetic sensors. And it was just, it was a great experience to get into this electromechanical plus software side of engineering at a level that you probably don't get in a lot of jobs. Um, right. Yeah. And then from that, there, go ahead. No, 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 please continue. I'm just going to say that's why I love the smaller companies where you get a chance, you know, mid-sized to small companies. So please go ahead. Yeah, you, you get to you get to touch every part of the product. Um, mm -hmm. And and again, it was kind of just luck that I, I found that job, um, you know, and it was great luck. So so from there is when I moved into the marine industry. And again, at this point, I was building products that were safety critical, shift and throttle, steering, um, control systems for boats and electromechanical in nature. And, you know, I was I was running the entire engineering department as, as director of engineering, um, smaller divisions. So, you know, I didn't just get to sit up there and, you know, while I did a lot of spreadsheets and Gantt charts and all that, uh, I had to do the whole deal from hiring and mentoring and training to actually being in the test lab and building prototypes and getting it out into production and shipping units. Um, at that facility in particular, we, we were pretty much vertically integrated. So we were bringing in, you know, raw stainless steel, uh, improved plow steel, plastic pellets, extruding them, manipulating them, machining them, assembling them into units, and then shipping them all out of the same building. Oh, we would wow. ship, yeah, we, we shipped about 400,000 units a year out of that building. Um, so really cool experience in how to scale things. And, you know, ultimately through those experiences, I looked at it and said, I've, I've got a pretty good broad background of, you know, touching all the disciplines of engineering, but also all this manufacturing stuff and um i might as well try and do it on my own and you know that 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 brought it into epoch um 
So, so you mentioned, go oh, ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 go I, ahead. I was just, I was going to ask uh, specifically for Epoch, what kind of tools and technologies you're using for your prototyping and working through your own systems um, and which of those you sort of brought with you? I will, let me answer that and also answer Valerie's question about the hydrofoil design at, oh, at the same yeah. time, because <laughs> they're, they're very much interrelated. Oh, good. I forgot. Um, <laughs> Hydrofoil, I'll start with the hydrofoils. They are, they're a pretty well-known technology. Um, if you ever watch America's Cup racing, these super fast sailboats, they use hydrofoils. That's how they, that's how they go fast and win the races. Um, the US Navy was experimenting with them in the 50s through the 70s and actually had some commissioned boats that had fixed hydrofoils on them um, that were in the 200 ton range. So really, really big vessels. And they kind of fell out of favor in large part because of the technology required to make them work at the time. It wasn't cost effective. Mm. So when we started and we looked at, can we do an electric jet ski? And we started running all the calculations and seeing how much battery we'd have to put in and what the hull drag looks like and what the hydrodynamics look like, which incidentally would have been very difficult to do 10 years ago because the computing power wasn't there. and the availability of open source resources and to go to the internet and find the information we need to build models just wasn't readily available. Um, we looked at it and said, there's, there's no way. Like, the most batteries we can pack in there, people are gonna get 30 minutes of fun time on their, uh, on their jet ski and they're gonna be back at the dock. And, and that's not what a customer wants. Um, so ultimately we said, okay, how do, you, how do you fix that? You go bigger, right? If you have a bigger platform, you can put more batteries in it. And hopefully, hopefully there's some you know, area where the curves cross and the drag and the amount of batteries you have in it kind of hits an inflection point and then we can get the use case that people want. We didn't really find that to be the case <laughs> with, a, with a standard boat hull design. But as we, we kind of were noodling around and looking at how can we improve efficiency, hydrofoils kept coming up. And, you know, we did a dive in and said, why were they in use back in the day? Why did the Navy use them? And why did they get out of favor? And a lot of it came down to the drive technology. If you're in a naval cruiser with big diesel engines and you're gonna raise this whole boat out of the water, you know, multiple feet out of the water, and now you've got to get that diesel powertrain down to a submerged propeller, it, it doesn't really work well. But if you have an electric motor that you can easily run electricity down to that propeller and keep it below the surface, it, it starts to open up some new opportunities. And then it drastically improves efficiency. So. So we started diving into that and looking at the control mechanisms and everything, and then realized, okay, for small boats, you need to, you need to have some control capability. And again, 10, 15 years ago, it would have been really expensive to make that a reality and really finicky. But in 2022, we can go buy an Arduino and we can go buy sensors and we have great uh -huh. open source libraries and tutorials and we can say, okay, you know, are we gonna hook this up to an IMU? Are we gonna hook it up to ultrasonic sensors? Are we gonna do both? and be able to control the stability of the boat and make sure that if somebody hits a wake or if they go into a bank turn, that the hydrofoils aren't gonna get into some weird dynamic situation that's gonna cause instability in the boat. Um, so that was that was kind of how we, we progressed down that. And then we figured out, hey, we're in this great point where it's not that hydrofoils were bad back in the 70s, it's just they didn't have the, the infrastructure and the architecture to really make it work, but we have that now and it's easily accessible. Um, and then Laura, to, to jump back to your question a little bit, some of the tools that we use, I am, I am really big on minimum viable product, but also minimum viable testing. 
-hmm. And I, I think the maker mindset lends itself to the minimum viable test concept in a really profound fashion. Um, so that's, that's kind of always been my experience. Um, I built, I built my first 3d printer in 2011. And, uh, you know, from that experience, you look at it and say, oh, when you've got, you know, stepper motors and linear actuators and Arduinos and shield boards, and you're controlling all this, you start to realize, wow, there's really inexpensive ways that I can test things out and platform them. And, you know, I've kind of taken that in my professional career and, and the people that I've hired and mentored and said, listen, if you look at historically how big companies run, they spend gobs of money to prototype things and test it out, but you can do it without gobs of money. You can do it really inexpensively as long as you're clever about it and smart about it and make sure you have good design of experiment. And, you know, that that's really been a driving force here of we're not just going to go out and build out this whole production facility and make a boat from day one. We're going to, we're going to do, you know, subsystem testing. How do we control that? How do we get the code on the Arduino and make sure that it makes sense? How do we tune it? How do we understand the variables that are happening here? And, and it can be done really inexpensively. So, you know, in terms of some of the tools, Arduino is one desktop CNC, another one that has just, you know, gotten so inexpensive that, that it's amazing. Um, We've looked into some local maker spaces to supplement, you know, some tools that don't quite make sense for us to uh, to buy. And the other thing that's really come along recently that's maybe a bit under the water is, or a, a bit maybe not as pronounced as some of the 3D printing and CNC tools is the cost of welding equipment and plasma cutting equipment has dropped precipitously in the last five years. Um, and that's something where we've been able to go out and, and buy really expensive welders and, and bring them in, you know, whether it's TIG or MIG or, or stick welders. And, and that's just let us build out manufacturing and prototyping capability in a way that wasn't possible before. Just in case some of our listeners yeah. don't know what it is, do you want to explain, like, you know, explain it like I'm five, what a hydrofoil is? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I spend so much time thinking about it that sometimes <laughs> I, I forget. So we, we let you go on and I'm like, you know, some people may not know this, so I figured we should probably, you know, make sure we like have it out there. Okay, so I, I just want to start with an example, and that is, imagine you go run the 40-yard dash just on a track in air, right? You you get your max speed, you know, it's probably a little painful for most of us, me, me definitely, but you get some time. Now imagine you go into a pool and you try and run a 40-yard dash you're gonna be incredibly slow. Um, and that's because water is about 800 times more dense than air. So when we looked at this problem, we said, okay, you've got electric vehicles, electric scooters, Teslas, they have rolling friction you know, in their wheels and in their bearings and, and their motors, and they drive through air. When we put a boat in the water, we have a hull that is dragging through this water, which is 800 times more dense. And that is the real technical problem we have to solve. So, what hydrofoils do is they're basically like airplane wings. When they, when they move through a fluid medium, they create lift as acceleration increases. And so what we do is in, instead of being like an airplane where the wings come out the side, we actually have the hydrofoils under the boat. And as the boat achieves speed, it lifts the entire hull out of the water, which takes away all that drag. So the entire hull is kind of flying above the water 
and then the hydrofoils are still below it and we need to control them and, and make sure that they stay in the right operating window. And that lets us get about 50% increase in max speed for a given power and about a 3x increase in range just because of mm. efficiency gains. The, the really interesting technical part of it, going back to the airplane analogy, is if you think about an airplane, whether you're at 20,000 feet, 30,000 feet, or 40,000 feet, that wing pretty much reacts the same. So there's a, a rather large operating window. With hydrofoils, we're, we're operating in inches of operating window. So we have to you know, manage that. And that's really the key part of being able to use low-cost electronics to prototype it and understand the, the technology before we get into you know, a more scaled production system. I wanted to ask about the um, Penovation Accelerator Program. I see you were accepted for this year and uh, maybe talk a little bit about um, that experience and how that's helped you go from a startup to a company with a brand new product, essentially, uh, and a waiting list for that product. Yeah, Penovation, we we're, we're still in the cohort right now. We're still going through the active program, and it's been great. Um, so at Epoch, our founding team all came out of the marine industry. We've all kind of been in that corporate environment um, you know, while we've been running projects and building things in our garage and doing all that kind of fun stuff on the side, we had never done a startup before. So we're all first time founders. And there is a distinct difference between how you would go to the executive team of a publicly traded company who you are employed by and know well and present a project to them versus how you approach you know, venture capitalists or angel investors or high net worth individuals. And when we, we started Epoch, you know, there's um, kind of similar to the makerspace. There's actually been this proliferation of information about if you want to start a startup, here is all the knowledge and it's all for free on the internet. And, you know, accelerators like Y Combinator have startup school, they put it out there and here you go, you can read about it, you can do it. So one of the things that they always say, startup, whether you're doing a startup or doing a, a maker project or anything is like fail fast, right? Mm -hmm. Arduinos are cheap. If you let the smoke out, you can go buy another one for 15 <laughs> or $30 or something. Um, so we started right off the bat and just said, hey, we've got some math models. We've made this little pitch deck and we're going to start talking to investors. And it was bad because <laughs> um, we had this corporate mindset like, hey, I've, you know, we've run multi-million dollar projects. We've gotten them approved. They've been successful. And we kind of went out with a similar pitch deck. You know, we had changed it for what we learned going through those kind of early startup learnings, but the way that we presented it and spoke about it wasn't really hitting with mm -hmm. the, the VC people and the, the investors. And what Penovation is about is all about, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna teach you how to do this startup thing. Um, the cohort that we're in is amazing, almost, surprisingly to me, almost every company in our cohort, every startup has some type of hardware aspect. Hmm. And I say surprising because when you look at VC funding, about 80% of it goes to software. Mm -hmm. Software as a service or, you know, AI and ML, just pure software plays and very little goes to things that actually have a physical component to it. So we, we got into the cohort on our first day and everybody explained what they're working on. I thought, wow, almost everybody has you know, some piece of hardware that's tied to it, which is pretty cool. Um, and it's a very diverse cohort too, which is another thing that you don't necessarily see in the startup scene. Um, 
I think last year, about 2% of venture dollars went to female founded companies and about 3% went to, you know, people that are people of color or underrepresented uh, founders. So the Pennovation team has done a really great job of saying, hey, we're, we're going to be inclusive. Um, I don't know if they have metrics behind the scenes or whatever that they're specifically driving for that, but, but they achieved it in our cohort, at least. And I feel like the previous ones have been as well. Plenty, we've, plenty of our makers have come out of that uh, group as well. And I feel like that's a common thread. I think that they have often had a lot of hardware folks and a lot of diversity. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go no, ahead. No, it's sorry. great. I, mean, I, I, <laughs> I definitely appreciate the background because I, I noticed it, but I haven't spoken to the the you know leaders of the cohort about it yet. But um, I think it's great. And yeah. uh, you know, it, it's certainly something we see in the boating industry that's top of mind for me too, because the boating industry is a very homogeneous customer base and manufacturing base today. And I, I look at that and say, man, there are like, there are people who don't like being on the water for whatever reason, you know, unfamiliarity, seasickness could be anything. Right. But a lot of people like being on the water and by being very homogeneous, we're excluding, we're a, just excluding a lot of people, but B, we're also missing a lot of opportunity to grow the industry, which as a company, you know, you want to grow the industry and you want to have more opportunity for sales. So um, I look at that and just say, we should be more inclusive for, for every reason, from morality and ethics to just pure business reasons. And um, what Pennovation is doing and has done is really great. And the education so far has been great. We're, we're super glad to be part of it and to continue to be a part of it. Yeah. And I love that your product, you mentioned on your website, I saw that it's... Um... A, I don't want to use the word user friendly, but like a, a nice, your products can be easy for people who are new to boating to kind of use your boats to try out, try it out and see if they like it. So um, is that because of you don't have to deal with the um, gas propulsion type things and, and, and engines and it's just electric or is there uh, other reasons for that? Yeah. I think it's a combination of that and, and some other intentional reasons on our part. Um, so one of the things that, that has happened in our industry, going back to the 2008 financial crisis, basically in 2008, the boating industry got cut in half from a volume perspective. And over the last 12, 14 years, it has grown back to the volume level that it was at, but it's like doubled in terms of top dollar sales revenue. Mm -hmm. And basically that means that boat builders are making like two X for every boat they build. And hmm. what, what happened there is they, the kind of the industry, whether intentionally or unintentionally realized, Hey, there's a lot of, you know, 1% financial people that can afford boats regardless of economic downturns. And if we put all the latest gadgets and gizmos and there's 150 switches on the dash that allows us to upsell and add to our margins and, you know, make more money for building fewer boats, which from a business perspective is great if you're that business. <laughs> what it's done and what we've viewed is it's created this big gap at the entry level of the market. And that's really where we're targeting. Um, you know, our, our entry level or our first launch boats kind of fit into that. They're, they're still expensive, but our goal is as we, as we progress and as we scale and build out production that we can drive those costs down and and get even more affordable entry level boats so that people can go out and, you know, for entry level, getting into boating is definitely a daunting thing. Um, 
you know, there's no, there's boater safety courses, but there's like, you don't have to do on-road instruction like you do to get your driver's license. There's no lines painted on the water, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, people can, can go in weird directions. There's extensive weather things that can impact how you boat. You know, if the wind's blowing one way and the current's going a different way and you've got to hook up to a dock. So um, anything that we can do to kind of take those aspects away helps people get into boating. And we've got some future things on our roadmap about how we can make it even more simplistic with joystick controls and, and things of that nature so that it really becomes, <laughs> it becomes, you know, what people are used to, right? Like we have, I have two boys, we have an Xbox and a Nintendo Switch. They all have joysticks on them, right? So <laughs> everybody's used to that. And um, there is some availability of that in the market on those really expensive boats. But I look at that and say, what is preventing us from putting it on entry-level boats? Right. Not a whole lot aside from protecting margin, which as a startup, we don't have to worry about that because any margin we get is new margin. So we're not protecting it. We're, <laughs> we're striving for it. Um, I'm going to switch gears on you and ask what superpower you would want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is a good question. <laughs> I always go to teleportation. That is, um, you know, I, I actually, and, and the reason is because I hate waiting. <laughs> we, uh, we, we took the kids to Disney for the first time, um, last year or this past spring and we had a really great vacation but you know the entire thing is you're waiting in line you you go to everything you wait in line and you you get this you know couple minute ride so i think i think part of that mentality for me is part of why i enjoy you know being a maker right when mm -hmm. i go quote something with a vendor and they tell me seven days to get a prototype i look at that and go um if i if i can fire that up on the you know the cnc mill we could have that in seven hours or if i put it on my 3d printer it could be in 24 hours or whatever depending on the size so mm -hmm. um that's probably that's probably why i would choose that hmm. how would you spend an ideal day so this is this is what i always told my team back um when i was at sea star we had a fleet of five test boats and Probably part of what influenced the the push for us to go electric at Epoch was that ultimately I was responsible for those test boats. They were all gas powered and there was always something wrong with them because of the gas powered engine. Clogged carburetors, fuel water separators, fuel filters, something was always bad on it. Um, and what I was trying to get to at the time was a state where I said, listen, this is what I want to do. Every day I want a boat on the water doing some kind of test, except for, you know, in like December when the water gets really hard, <laughs> but I want to show up. I want you guys already on the water. I'm going to sit down in the boat, have a cup of coffee, and you're going to show me what you're testing and why it's so great. And then we're going to go back to the office and we're going to iterate on it. We're going to make it better. And we're going to continue to design things. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's really my drive every day from an intellectual standpoint and a work standpoint. And then my wife and I are, I don't know if foodie is the right term. I don't know if we quite, <laughs> quite reach the level of foodie, but we, we definitely have a huge appreciation for food and, and we cook a lot. So that would be the end of the day is to come home, cook a great meal. Um, we really try to do family dinners with the kids every night. Um, not a hundred percent successful in that, but you know, that, that would kind of be the, the end of the day is get the work done in the beginning, come have a great meal and then 
you know, kind of try not to answer too many emails at night after dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so what's next for Epoch? We are right now we are in the process of talking to investors and our next our next plan here is to build out a pilot production facility in southeast Pennsylvania. Um, so, you know, we're at the prototype level. If anybody is on the Schuylkill River between uh, actually all the way up in Landingville, pretty much down to Philadelphia, we have different launches that we go to. And if you see crazy people flying above the river on, on boats that look like they were made by makers, that's what we're doing right now. <laughs> um, so we're continuing to refine our control systems and our, our foiled profile designs and, and everything that goes along with it. And, and then our next step is to get into a production facility so we can start manufacturing boats at, at scale and selling them to, to people who've signed up on our wait list. Hmm. Cool. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I think the, the only thing I'd say is that to anybody listening, if they have any interest in getting into technical aspects of, of being a maker or, or even, you know, things that people might consider non-technical, right? I think maker is a really broad term. I've talked a lot about hardware and mechanical engineering today, but, you know, I, I see it goes into everything, right? Um, knitting and, and making jewelry and it's, it's all over the board. And I think Philadelphia has a pretty good environment for supporting anybody that wants to get into that stuff. Um, both at a very, like at a very ad hoc community level, but also at a more formal level with places like Hive 76 or NextFab. Mm -hmm. um, and I would encourage anybody to just, just do it. Um, once you get out and get into the community, you'll find people who are amazingly generous with their time and their knowledge and, you know, resources to make it happen. I know that there's, there's libraries that have maker resources available that are, you know, very low cost depending on if there's materials that get involved with it. But yeah, I would say anybody should just go do it and, and you'll be amazed that, that, you know, how enriching it can be and the things you'll learn and the opportunities that present themselves. Well, thank you, uh, Tom, for joining us today. This has been a pleasure and we've, we've learned something new, uh, a new area for us, a new type of maker. It's our first boat. <laughs> so this is good. <laughs> and uh, get back to building boats. <laughs> thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Philly Maker Fair podcast. We're streaming on all platforms, so join us each week. Learn more about today's podcast at phillymakerfair.com. We're social, so keep in touch. You can find us on Twitter as PHLMake. Also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Pinterest as Philly Maker Fair, all one word. And be sure to hit the subscribe button for future podcasts. See, See you, you next, next week. week. The opinions expressed by the guests of the Philly Maker Fair podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the hosts or producers. If you enjoy the Philly Maker Fair podcast, please consider making a donation at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com. Search for JD Maker or go to ko dash fi.com slash jdmaker slash tears. Your support helps offset the costs of recording, editing, and maintaining the Philly Maker Fair podcast. Supporters at any of our tiers will receive a shout out on the podcast and via our social network. Thanks.